extended family where uh, we went to State Park this weekend up in Tennessee, and we're, it's become an annual thing for us. It's so hard to get together during Christmas that we put it off till March or April and get together with everybody. So we enjoyed uh, the weekend up there and got back just a little bit ago, but I, I appreciate uh, Stan for filling in for me this morning so we could go and uh, do that with, with uh, my parents and sisters and kids now and it's growing. You'd think I know how to work this by now, wouldn't you? It has to be off of mute. Thanks, Mark. Okay, so we starting Deuteronomy this week. So so since we were last together in this kind of setting uh, a month ago. Uh, we've done a lot of reading, and if you're, if you're still up to speed, let me, let me encourage you just for a second. I know some of you are behind, not because I know that individually. I just know people. I know us. I know me, and I know that some of you are behind, all right? And that's okay. I'm, I'm not ever going to beat you over the head with this this year. I'm promising you I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to try to make you feel guilty about it because it's hard, you know? I know, I know that. But I do want to encourage you some. Um, if, if you're behind, you can get caught up. All right? It's not the end of the world. This is that when I was thinking about doing this this year, this was my, my concern about doing it this way, where we have the discussion classes every, every other, basically every other week, was that inevitably, come March, April, some people are going to get behind, and then they're going to just quit. Because, well... I'm not where they are, and we're having a discussion class on Numbers and Deuteronomy, and I'm stuck in Exodus 12, you know, and so I might as well just quit. So I, I just want to do whatever I can do to encourage you not to, not to quit. Um, you, if you may choose, and I think this might be a good way to go about it, if you're behind, just jump to where we are and, and start doing those readings, and then go back and just read a couple of chapters of where you're behind on. All right? And so come back to where we are. Uh, the calendars for March are back there on the back rails. And if you're following the Bible app, of course, you've got them there. Come, come to where we are and then just read two or three chapters every day wherever you are, wherever you got held up at. Catch back up. All right? Do it that way. Because I don't want you to get discouraged and I don't want you to think that these Sunday nights are a waste of time because you're not where we are. I'm going to try to make them anyway where... Uh, they'll be relevant to you, even if you have no clue, or at least this past week you haven't done the readings that many, many people have done. So what we're going to do tonight is I want to spend a little bit of time just kind of making sure we know where we are in this Bible reading, where, where the story is, where, how it's progressing. And I've got some questions I want, to, I want to try to answer that some of you have submitted. I made an appeal for questions, and some of you responded quite well. I may not even get to all of them, but we're going to do several of those tonight, Lord willing. Most of them from the book of Exodus. I think people just didn't, from Leviticus, I thought I'd get a ton of questions from Leviticus. And I think people were like, I've got so many questions from Leviticus, I'm not even going to ask any of them. So I didn't get any from, Le- from Leviticus, though you could have asked many, I'm sure. But I do have several from the book of Exodus, and we'll spend some time there. Okay, so just to make sure everybody knows, some of this may be you know, just basic information for some of you, but I want to make sure we all know what we're doing as far as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
uh, beginning, you know, a month or so ago, we were talking about Exodus. We watched the two videos on Exodus a month ago. You remember Exodus starts with Israel in the land of Egypt, and they are enslaved. They have multiplied. They've been there. They got there at the end of Genesis because of the whole thing with Joseph's family and the famine. Remember that at the end of Genesis? So they brought, Joseph brought his extended family, his dad and his brothers, and there were about 70 of them that came down. That was at the end of Genesis. When you open the first page of the book of Exodus, about 400 years have passed, and now the nation has multiplied. It's not a family of 70, but probably it's a couple of million, two or three million people. And things have changed also. They have become oppressed, and Pharaoh has decided he's going to oppress them. So that's where Exodus starts. So Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those four books basically cover a very short period of time. Not talking about a lot of time in these four books. They, in fact, if you just if you go from let's see, you know what, Exodus four or so, Exodus four to well, the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, a big part of Numbers. You're just talking about they're they're leaving Egypt and they stop at Mount Sinai. They stop at the mountain and get the law, and they stay there for quite a while. So you're just talking about a, I, I, I shouldn't have started that because I don't know for sure, maybe a few months, maybe, in a, I don't know for sure. It's not very long, you know, from the time they left Egypt to they camped at Mount Sinai. So, so here's the progression. Uh, God sends Moses down to Egypt. He rescues them from slavery. They cross the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is following them. And then God sends the Red Sea back on top of the army. They keep going. They stop periodically, but they get to the base of Mount Sinai. In the book of Exodus, God descends and he gives Moses the law, Ten Commandments, but a bunch of other laws. You know, that happens in Exodus. And so the people are just camped there. One of the big things that you read a lot about is how to, how to build the tabernacle. Because you remember, one of the points of emphasis in, in all of this is how can we dwell? How can we the descendants of Adam and Eve, both in the flesh and in the spirit, in the sense that we follow their lead. How can we, the descendants of Adam and Eve, dwell in the presence of a holy God? And the answer to that is, we can't. We cannot, because we are unholy, and He is holy, and we cannot approach that holiness without dying. And so, Exodus and Leviticus spell out, okay, so how are we going to be in the presence of God in a mediated sense? And the answer to that is, in the tabernacle. God is going to come in the tabernacle, and we are going to come to him there through blood, through the blood sacrifices, through these offerings. We're going to come to him at the tabernacle, which is God in our midst, right? Now, there are all sorts of hints here. You look ahead to Jesus said, I think I mentioned this a month ago, Jesus said, destroy the temple and I will rebuild it in three days. You remember that? They said, how are you going to rebuild it? It took us 46 years to build this thing. How are you going to do it in three days? They didn't know he wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about what? His body. God incarnate. God dwells among people in a temple. In the Old Testament, in Exodus, all this stuff, you know, build it just like this out of this, this material and make it this long and this wide. This is how you move it from place to place. Why all that meticulous preparation? Because we're talking about the dwelling place of God. You don't play around with God. Jesus comes, the temple that's destroyed 40 years after Jesus' death, 
the permanent structure. The temple is destroyed, never to be rebuilt. And, 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 and Jesus, though, he came not in, not in wood and bronze and silver and gold, but he came in the human flesh, and he is the temple of God. He is God incarnate. So that's a big deal. So when you read about the tabernacle, it's, it's foreshadowing what, what's going to happen for us, you know, and, and God in all of his glory is going to live among us. So you got Exodus, all the laws. Leviticus tells us a lot about those laws. And remember, just don't, don't, get, I mean, don't get bogged down in why can't you boil a baby goat in its mother's milk? Man, I don't know for sure. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I, mainly I've been talking about this as we were doing reading, and, and both of us have a lot. Like, she'll ask something, I'll be like, I don't know. And I'll say, you know, I'll ask, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the whys about this. But I, I don't want to get lost in, in all the details. I'm not saying they're, it's not, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to ask the questions. I'm just saying you're not going to get answers to all of them from me or anybody, I don't think, because we just don't know. But what we do know is, and this is, I really want you to get this when you read through Exodus and Leviticus especially, is you don't play around with God. And God is holy, and we're not. And if you want to come into the presence of God, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be prepared. And 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 so, all the cleanness and uncleanness, and if you touch a dead body, you accidentally, you know, all the all the st- all the stuff that he talks about there. God is not, that's not there to show that God is a God who excludes those with deformities, for example. Remember reading that. It's not the point of that. The point of it is to help us to see that God is the God of perfection. And a lot of that is hinting at something greater to come. In fact, let me mention this. This is a question I think that some of you may have asked. Seems like somebody said something about it. Remember all those ex- Laws of exclusion, but if, you're, if you've got the skin lesions, you don't come to the tabernacle, you're unclean, you know. Do you remember when Jesus, these little things are fascinating to me, when there was a leper in, in the New Testament, and uh, he came, he heard Jesus was nearby, and he said, make me clean. Do you remember what Jesus did? He reached out and he touched him see in the Old Testament if you touched a leper you touched somebody with some uncleanness what happened you remember right their uncleanness became your uncleanness but with Jesus his cleanness became their cleanness and so his perfection was given to those whom he touched so the leper became a non-leper when he came in contact with Jesus. In the Old Testament, the, you, you touched a leper, his leprosy became yours. In the New Testament, Jesus reached out and touched the leper, and instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the leper became clean. So, uh, I just don't want us to get too frustrated with trying to figure out exactly why did God do it that way. Um, we have to, I think we have to step back and try to view it from this big, big picture way and, and understand that, that a lot of this is meant so that we might see we are unclean. All of us are unclean. All of us are unclean and unholy and broken, and we cannot come into the presence of God. But 
Jesus makes us clean. So, so please don't miss that point. Uh, again, just summarizing for, for a minute, or a couple minutes, Exodus, they pretty much camped at Mount Sinai. You know, some stuff happens. They worship the golden calf. Just acts of rebellion over and over again. Uh, Leviticus is spelling out those laws. At the end of Exodus, the tabernacle is finished, but they, Moses can't go in. Remember that? Moses, at the end of Exodus, he can't go into the tabernacle. Like, why do we build it? We can't even go in it. So then Leviticus tells us how the priests prepare themselves in order to enter the holy place of God. And so this is, you go through all these rituals and stuff, and you can come into the tabernacle. The priest can, you know, the high priest can come into the holy of holies once a year. Just a lot of meticulous details. We walk away from that with an appreciation for the holiness of God and our unholiness and recognizing that even through all of these animal sacrifices, we still view God from a distance. Cannot come near because we are sinners. You know? So Leviticus ends. We've got the Day of Atonement right there in the middle of Leviticus. Leviticus ends, and then you go to Numbers. And um, Numbers is, it continues on the journey. Just so you know where we are chronologically, they, they pack up. They're heading to the land of Canaan. Gonna, they take a census. It's called Numbers because you've got a census at the beginning of Numbers, and you've got a census at the end of Numbers. 603,000 some odd at the beginning, and I think it's just a couple hundred short of, of 602,000 at the end of fighting men. What, what was the age? 20 years old and upward, I think it was, uh, fighting men, basically. So army is about 603,000 at the beginning, about 602,000 at the end. You know, if you know what happens in between, though, you know that the 602,000 at the end are not the 603,000 at the beginning because some big stuff happens in the middle of Numbers that makes those two census, censuses, <laughs> is that a word? Makes those two uh, numbers completely different. Sensei? Sensei is not a word. Okay, so what happens in, uh, what happens in Numbers? <laughs> what happens in Numbers? What happens in Numbers? Big, what I was talking about in the devotional thought a minute ago, is you've got, um, you've got a big thing that happens in Numbers 13. Spies go in the land, they come back out, and uh, ten of them say, we can't do it. The, the crowd listens to them, they listen to the ten, they listen to Joshua and Caleb, presumably, and whom do they believe? Young say it. Yeah, yeah ten, they, they believe the ten. We can't do it. Moses just brought us out here to kill us. Let's, uh, let's find another leader. We want to go back where we had it so good, back in Egypt. And, and God, God punishes them. I mean, the, you know, the gist of it is God, God says to them, uh, you're not going to go in. You're not going to get the land. Uh, you're, not, you're not going to go in. So everybody who's of a mature age at that point and who believes the faithless report of the ten uh, is not going to go in. So the, the rest of the book of Numbers is, if you visualize it on a map, they're about to go into the land. They're up here. They go south. They wander around. Uh, whole, whole deal takes about 40 years. And that's numbers. Then you got Deuteronomy, which we're going to talk about a little bit more uh, tonight. I want to deal with um, 
some of these, um, some of these questions that, that folks have asked. If you would go turn, turn, turn to Exodus 2, chapter 4, please. I'm going to go through. I'm not going to answer these thoroughly, but I am going to try to deal with some of these at least briefly. I have a question here about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Remember this? Book of Exodus. Hardened Pharaoh's heart. So what does this mean? Um, why does it say Exodus 4, 21 is the first time this is used. It's used quite a few times. Exodus 4, 21, God tells Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Man, that sure sounds like Pharaoh didn't have any choice in this. Sure sounds like God just said, you know, Pharaoh, tough luck, man. You don't have a choice. Certainly, if you read it that way in, in isolation, you know, I think, I think we might get that. And uh, there are a lot of other verses that say something similar to that in the book of Exodus. And I think that's a great question. And, and, and so what does it mean when it says God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart? A um, couple, couple of things right quickly. I'm going to go through this just for, got to do it pretty quickly, but it's used, an expression like this is used um, 18 times, I think it is. 18 times in, um, in Exodus, an expression like this. Let me read some of them. 421, I will harden his heart. We just read that one. 73, I will harden his heart. 713, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. 714, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. 722, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. 815, he hardened his heart. Um, that is, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to them. 819, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. 832, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. 97, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. 912, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. 934 and 35, uh, Pharaoh sinned yet again and hardened his heart. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. 101, God says, I have hardened his heart. 1020, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. <coughs> 1027, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. 1130, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. 14.4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. 14.8, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. 14.17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. So 18 times. <clears throat> when I was working on this, I just so I could kind of see this, I, I put these in three categories because I think there are basically three grammatical forms here. And one is, God says, I will harden his heart, or I hardened his heart. So that's an active, like God doing this to Pharaoh. So that's the active voice. And then there's the, like the, the passive, uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And then there's the other one where it says, Farden, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Okay, so you've got three different things there. God hardened his heart, his heart was hardened, or Pharaoh hardened his heart. So you've got three, and I... Put out, print out all these verses and then put them in different colors so that I could see kind of the distribution. And I, and I found it was interesting that generally speaking, toward the first part of the story, <coughs> this is not, not all, this is not, it's not exclusively so, but generally speaking, toward the first part of the story, you've got it saying either Pharaoh's heart was hardened, kind of a passive idea without clearly specifying who's doing the hardening. Or it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. That's at the first part. At the end of this, the last 
I can't remember, last six or seven of them are all God hardened his heart. So it seems, you know, if you're just, just kind of looking at it, there's a progression that near the beginning of the story, it seems as if Pharaoh is the one who's doing the hardening. And at the end of the story, it simply says God hardened his heart. One of the things I think that we can take away from this is, especially in the context of the whole Bible, is God, unless this, this is the exception, God does not arbitrarily choose someone who otherwise would be good and honest and receptive to the word of God and say, I'm sorry, you don't have a choice. You're going to hell and, and, and you can't do anything about it. I'm going to harden your heart. Unless this is the exception, that's not the way God works. And so then I would read this to say this. God did harden his heart, but not arbitrarily and not without Pharaoh's willing participation in disobedience to the expressed word of God. So Pharaoh said, I don't care what you tell me to do. I am not going to do it. And that statement is true that God hardened his heart because God asked him to do something that God knew Pharaoh would not do. And it's also true that Pharaoh hardened his own heart by willingly refusing to do that which God asked him to do. Do you see that? Um, I think that's a way of reading this that's faithful to the text and faithful to the overall message of the Bible. God didn't harden his heart apart from his will. Now, one thing I think you need to recognize that we need to, we need to see is that, and this relates to this, but it, I don't want to make this too soft. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want you to walk away from this thinking, um, of a, of a watered-down view of God because the language is strong. And, and I was reading something earlier this afternoon about the word heart as it was used in an Egyptian context, an Egyptian culture. They had this word for heart, and Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of, of Egypt, was supposedly supposed to have the pure heart. He was supposed to represent purity of heart in Pharaoh culture, or in, uh, in Egyptian culture, okay? And so all of this language throughout Exodus, you remember one of the main purposes of the ten plagues was to show that God is God and Egypt's gods are not gods. And if you look at that heart in Egyptian culture, Pharaoh being the representative of a, of a pure heart, and you see these verses again and again that say God hardened his heart, you would, you would quickly recognize that this Pharaoh, who was supposed to be a God and purity of heart among the Egyptians, God takes his heart and he does with it whatever he wants. So at the end of the story, you realize, if you believe it, you realize Yahweh is the God and Pharaoh is not a God at all. And neither are his other gods are the other gods of Egypt. So I think that's pretty important to, uh, to recognize. I had a couple of questions about slavery. Man, this, all these questions, you ask them because they're hard. I mean, you know, you don't have questions unless the answer is not immediately obvious. This is, this is a tough question, and so much could be said about it. So let me just say a couple words, and I'll maybe point you to a couple of resources. Uh, what about slavery? Why does the uh, book of Exodus, point of it is, why does Exodus 
uh, talk about slavery. Like you can, you can have slaves and this is, this is how you treat them. That sort of thing. Exodus 21 and other places. Exodus 11. So the questions being, um, was, God, was God in favor of slavery? The, this, this is a tough thing because obviously you've got in Exodus and Leviticus, you've got God regulating slavery, don't you? I mean, there's no way around it. Um, so, so what do you do with this? There are other things, the way women were treated in Exodus and Leviticus. Um, there other examples of this. So, so how do we respond to this? Here's, here's a quick answer, and I'm going to point you to a couple of things maybe you might be interested in reading. Uh, the ancient world, ancient Near Eastern world, was a world in which slavery was practiced by every culture, and women were objects, and they were property. Right? Every ancient Near Eastern culture What we have in the law is God not abolishing every sinful manifestation in every culture, not even in Jewish culture. God not abolishing them entirely, but rather taking institutions that were a part of the world and making them more humanitarian in view of the fact that these people knew nothing else. Sometimes I think we, we might tend to, to take our 21st century, I'm not saying we're wrong, certainly, I'm not saying we're wrong about slavery, about the treatment of women, all right? But we got to, at least for a moment, put ourselves back in an ancient Near Eastern world with a group of people who had spent 400 years in Egypt and knew nothing else. And they come out, what is God going to do? with them at this point. I suggest to you that God accommodated his ultimate will to where the people were intellectually and emotionally and spiritually in order that he might bring them out of the abuses that they were familiar with and that they knew and that were prevalent in every culture and he made them more humanitarian in his laws with a view toward ultimately through the principles set forth in the law and then, and then seen more clearly in Christ, God would abolish certain of these practices. That's a short answer. A couple of, couple of books. Um, um, Christopher Wright, I've, I've recommended this one to you before, uh, The God I Don't Understand by Christopher Wright. Another one by Paul Copan, C-O-P-A-N, is called, Is God a Moral Monster? Both of those written from a, uh, from, from a Christian perspective in that they believe the Bible is true and they deal with some of these difficulties. So um, the God I don't understand, Christopher Wright, Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copan. I'd recommend those to you. One more. We've got several more, but I'm not going to get to them. <clears throat> here's, here's one about Exodus 20. Exodus 20, 26, it says that the priest uh, shouldn't use the steps to go up to, up to the altar, but that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Remember this one? Man, there's all sorts of kind of awkward conversational, you know, well, verses you don't bring up in polite conversation. Now, what in the world is going on? Basically, it says, priest, don't go up on the altar 
the word for nakedness, we're mostly adults in here, right? Um, well, nakedness is a bit of a euphemism, if that helps. Yeah, they, at, this, at this point in, in Israel's development, uh, the men didn't wear underwear, okay? And, and so it seems to be what, what this is regulating at this point is that at this point the altars weren't high off the ground. They were like an earthen mound. And basically this is a very practical thing. He's saying you need to be respectful of the fact that you're in worship to God and you don't want to expose yourself when you walk up on the altar. So don't use steps because they're, you know, obviously. Um, that's good. You know, you got other, you got, got questions about some of this, some of this stuff. Some of it's just very, very, just basic stuff as far as um, just very human things. And, that, and that's one of those, I think, it has to do with just respect for what is going on. I think the larger principle we take away from that is when God is being worshipped, let's be careful. You know, let's let's take that let's take that seriously. Um, another question: Exodus twenty three twenty says that God would send an angel to lead them. I want to read that. Exodus twenty three twenty. Exodus twenty three twenty says, "Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared." Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So who is the angel? What in the world is that talking about? Um, this is this angel here. Short answer is, I believe this is God. In fact, I, I believe this may be, this may be Jesus Christ, um, pre-incarnate Jesus. Uh, first person, second person, third person of the Godhead. Uh, and the reason I think that is, throughout the the book of Exodus, you've got this angel being referred to. Often he's called the angel of the Lord. Now, I don't know Hebrew very well at all, uh, but I was reading from, from one person who does about this particular phrase, and when it uses this expression, angel of the Lord, it's a particular Hebrew construction that doesn't mean like the angel that God sent, though sometimes it's going to use sent language. It, it doesn't, it's a stronger version of that. And the illustration they used is like when you say the river of Euphrates. Same exact construction. You're not, you're not saying the, the river that comes from Euphrates, right? You're saying the river that is Euphrates. So it's this particular kind of construction here. And, and that's why some, sometimes they'll translate it, especially when they're commenting on it, they'll translate this angel of the Lord expression. They'll say the angel that is the Lord. And so that's why I believe this is God. I believe the angel of the Lord is God, uh, pre-incarnate Jesus, pre-incarnate word of God. Um, anyway, that's, that's a lot more about that, but we don't have, don't have time. Exodus 2 23 through 25. Why did God choose to hear the cry of Israel? And why did it take that for him to remember his covenant? So keeping in mind, this is 400 years. They've been there 400 years. And I think the question is, like, you, you come to Exodus 2, and they've been slaves for a long time, right? 
So they cried out and God responded. Why, why did it take that? Why didn't, why didn't, God, why didn't God respond earlier? Why, why did he let them languish in slavery for so long? Some questions we don't know. I, I don't know why. I know, I know you got passages like, well, you've got other passages that talk about God delaying because something in the world is going on that we don't even know about, that God is waiting for it to play out. Uh, I don't know exactly why God waited until this point to lead them out of captivity. But we do know that when the time came, when the appropriate time came, God acted on his covenant. One thing, that, one thing that's important, and I think somebody asked this, maybe it was on the Bible app, the word remember, you know, like God remembered his covenant. This wasn't the question that was asked on the Bible app or anywhere else, but this is my rephrasing this. Like, does God have short-term memory loss? Did God forget about it for a while? And then they start crying out to him, and he remembers. Now, you know that's not true. The Hebrew word translated remember is a word that means not, not to recollect, but to act consistently with the terms of the covenant. So in other words, it means God decided this was the right time and he would act and he would keep the covenant. He doesn't always act according to our time frame, but he always acts consistent with his own will. And so I, I think that's, a, that's an important thing. Um, there are other, other questions that you guys have asked, and I apologize. Um, we just don't have time tonight to answer. Let me introduce Deuteronomy. We're just gonna, Chad, we're just gonna hold off on that video. I'll, I'll, I'll post this, and if you're interested in watching the Bible Project video, I'll, I'll, we'll send you a link tomorrow, and I'll post it on Facebook as well. A link to the seven-minute video, the ones that I've been showing on Sunday night. We just won't do that tonight for, for lack of time. Uh, this just shows you that we I get a little bit more time and spend every bit of it, right? Get a little bit more time and still don't cover what we intend to cover. Um, Deuteronomy, just so you know, I think you start reading it. Is that Tuesday, maybe, when we start reading Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy is a word that means, um, it's, it's two Greek words, basically. Uh, you see it at the end of it, n- n- the, the nami part, namas, is the Greek word for law. And then the deutero is the idea of second, like the number, the number two. So you got second law. What, what Deuteronomy is, the book of Numbers, everybody died out. I say everybody, almost everybody. So you got a census at the beginning of Numbers and the census at the end, and they're not the same people because in the middle, God said you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Until this generation has passed on and the, next, and the new generation has gotten to be adults. So at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, you got Moses, he gathers these people in the plains of Moab, a new generation of people, uh, still two or three million strong, but a bunch of them have died out. But you got a new generation. They weren't there at the Red Sea. Or if they were, they were babies. Or they were too young to appreciate what happened. They, weren't, they didn't know about it. They were two years old when the Red Sea parted. And now they're 40 or 42 years old. So second law, the book of Deuteronomy, you're going to find some repetition here, so get ready for it. Moses gives a couple of sermons in Deuteronomy to a new generation that doesn't remember the Red Sea, or at least they don't really remember it. All right? So Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. He, um, they, didn't have, they couldn't open up their Bibles. to the, They couldn't scroll down in the Bible app and read what happened in 
you know, Exodus 4 or Exodus 12. They couldn't do that. So, so Moses is telling these people some stuff that they had heard about probably, but he's giving an inspired account of what happened that led them to this point. So Moses is going to say, your, your moms and dads messed everything up. He's going to say that. Your parents messed the whole thing up, so blame them for this, you know. <coughs> and so that's what Deuteronomy is. A couple of sermons. Moses is going to warn them. He's going to do a lot of warming, warning. And at the end of Deuteronomy, and I think before we meet again in, in uh, whenever it is for the next discussion class, and well, it's two weeks from now, I think we'll start Joshua, and that's where they, Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy, and they get ready to go into the land finally in Joshua. So that's, that's where we are. You guys have been great. I appreciate so much your, your questions, and I'm sorry we did not get to all of them. But I want to pray now as we, as we finish up for tonight. And just keep, keep reading, all right? You'll, you'll glean more than you think you're gleaning when you're getting through some of this difficult stuff, all right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. And there are parts of it, many parts of it, Lord, we don't understand. But we know that you will help us to understand what we need to, that you will never withhold yourself from seeking hearts, honest hearts. And we pray that we will have that kind of heart, not a Pharaoh kind of heart, but a submissive learning heart that will open up your word and we will sincerely ask, Lord, what do you want to teach me? And how do you want me to live in view of what I learn? Bless us as we keep on reading. Use your word to shape us and mold us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much.